0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com weightloss.
1: You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies.
2: For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change
1: creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Steve Lucas. He was recently CEO of Marketo, and as they've been acquired by Adobe, is now Senior Vice President of Digital Experience at Adobe. And we talk today about his new book, Engage to Win, Blueprint for Success in the Engagement Economy. And I just want to read one of the endorsements on the back from another guest on the show, Seth Godin. Seth writes, Urgent, actionable insights from the front lines of our revolution. Marketing is never going to be the same, and Steve Lucas wants to help you see our new future. So today on the show, we talk a lot about engagement, which is one of the biggest components of his book, what it looks like, some of the examples and how it works today. And there's even more examples in the book. Then we talk a lot about Steve and uh, his role, his time, how he got to be CEO at Marketo, as well as an early diagnosis at age 24 with type 1 di- diabetes and how that's changed his perspective on life. So I hope you enjoy this show with Steve Lucas. Well, Steve, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to be on and uh, looking forward to chatting.
1: Well, let's let's get started with your background. Um, you know where you started your career. Obviously, any pivotal twists, maybe the recent acquisition by Adobe of Marketo would be one of those. But where'd you where'd you start?
3: Yeah, the the acquisition definitely a twist. But uh, you know, my my start was at Microsoft about twenty four years ago. Uh, quite a while now, and actually started in uh, in field marketing. So my first love was marketing. But I have a bit of a technical background, so quickly got back into the uh, technical selling business development side of things. And um, I really worked at you know, large organizations for the most part. But uh, I spent a significant amount of my career in uh, analytics and business intelligence and, and kind of participated in the evolution and maturation of that industry, working for companies that produce like Crystal Reports. And then I worked for Business Objects. And I was there for quite some time, eleven years. So I just missed out on the whole dot com era, and uh, and kept plugging away. And then we were acquired by uh, SAP in 2007, I believe. And at that point in time, I'd done uh, myriad roles from uh, running, you know, uh, being a head of a business development organization to leading sales organizations. And my goal was to do as many different roles as I possibly could to prepare myself for my career goal, which if you had asked me even 20 years ago, I would have said, I want to be the CEO of a a billion dollar software company and make a dent in the universe and um, kind of feel like, you know, everything's led up to that, that, you know, kind of that point where, where I am now. But uh, I left business objects during the acquisition and went over to Salesforce.com I helped launch uh, Force.com while I was there. It was an extraordinary time, and then, believe it or not, I recruited back to SAP and became the president of their platform group, which was a bit of a nascent organization at the time, but built that up to a multi-billion-dollar organization. And then, two and a half years ago, had my kind of epiphonic moment of, I'm just not taking enough risk in my career, and uh, I think people would argue with me that you took plenty of risk, but. You know, I just felt like I had never put it all on the line. And when I saw the opportunity at Marketo present itself, I just I couldn't resist. It was an incredible company, but certainly a lot of risk when you leave a senior role at a well-established uh, software company to jump into something that has a bit of a question mark on the end of the sentence. And over the past, you know, two and a half years, it's just been an extraordinary run and had this incredible opportunity to build a great team, build a new culture and really while i did not invent marketo i had the opportunity to reinvent it and that resulted in a pretty extraordinary uh, marriage between marketo and adobe a near 5 billion dollar acquisition last year that closed in october
1: well congrats on that and and quite a trajectory of the career too what's your new your new role at adobe
3: well, it, it, uh, I could translate it as still CEO of Marketo, but the title is not CEO now. Uh, you know, that's part of it. But, uh, you know, all joking aside, the thing at Adobe that's really exciting is we're just in the second inning of a very long, in a good way, and a hugely uh, significant journey around building this enterprise software business for the organization and, and really focusing on customers. And at the, at the end of the day, Adobe's mission is to you know change the world through digital experience and uh, transform businesses through digital experience. And that, to me, really deeply resonates. And Adobe being genetically focused in a literal sense on the marketer and marketing has endeavored to really build a platform end-to-end for marketers. And I think probably the best way to characterize that is as Salesforce is to the seller, you know, Adobe aspires to be and is to the marketer from a platform perspective, clearly from a brand perspective, I think that's already the case. So my role is to really help forward that mission, unlock a lot of value in this Adobe experience cloud uh, platform that, uh, that we have, which Marketo is a core part of.
1: Great. Got it. Got it. And I agree with you. Adobe is doing some fantastic things. You never know what's coming next. Uh, So I'm waiting to see what comes next. But I also want to let's talk about your book and and I should say congrats again to you for publishing engaged to win uh, what was the what was the motivation what was the driving force behind that book
3: you know it's it's interesting in that um I've always felt this way uh, about the world we live in you know we 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 talk about the the numbers you know anytime you hear a rant about the digital world that we live in it's X number of billions of people with X number of screens. And it's just these numbers that are a little hard to grok. So I tend to take it down to a little bit more of a, a humanistic level of how does it impact you and me on a daily basis? So when I think about things like social media, don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan. But I find it ironic that the notion of social, in some respects, there's, there's aftershocks of it. It actually has a, the, the impact of we get less face time with each other you know when you think about you know the amount of time that you spend on whether it's facebook or linkedin or twitter and the list goes on and on and on and those are just some of the notional classics it's extraordinary but what also happens is we spend less time talking to each other we spend less time interfacing as humans and understanding each other's values and and how we feel about things and it's that's really really hard to do on twitter with, you know, at one point 140 characters, now 280. That's a really hard thing to do to understand context and meaning. And if you think about it, I mean, humans have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years where uh, we, we talk to each other face to face. We interface. We sat around the campfire. We drew pictures on walls and caves together. And just in the, it literally in, in the past few decades, even, you know, arguably certainly 50 years, We've gone from hundreds of thousands of years of of building this deep genetic level way of connecting and sharing emotion to now I need to be able to summarize everything that I have to say in 280 characters or less. (laughs) And that I think we probably need a couple thousand years of evolution to really catch up from a genetic level in terms of how we're supposed to do that. So I just am fascinated by the world that we live in now. And It's not a rage against that at all. That's not what the tome of the, you know, is intended to be. It is intended to be a call to action to say, we need to seek balance between leveraging the digital and the incredible capability that we have to reach not just thousands or millions, but hundreds of millions and billions of people with a click of a button. We need to balance that with with value driven engagement, human to human level interaction. And seeking that balance is all the more important in the world that we live in, because I find that if you seek that balance, then people get context. And I've always said it's you know, it's it's really hard to hate somebody when you look them in the eyes and that's you know for me it's there there's just a truth there that i think most people would find hard to debate and so that was really where it was born was wow this crazy world of marketing that we live in i can with the click of a button reach anyone now pretty much on the planet but where is the human aspect and the human element in that
1: got it well let's talk a little bit about engagement and maybe you could help define it how do you think about engagement today
3: well, I think about engagement as a value-driven interaction over, preferably, an extended period of time, where we are focused on your values and my values and how to best align those for our mutual benefit. That's how I think about engagement, and sometimes it's, it's best to characterize engagement as if you think about the, you know, how we we talk about um, the the modern world. We create experiences. Marketers today. A lot of what marketers think about in terms of, if you will, experience or whatever it may be, is we're measuring that through impressions and click-throughs. And what I consider to be a lot of sterile data and information, I'm looking at, are you a red dot? Are you a green dot? But what I'm not thinking about is, what's the lifetime value of the relationship that we're going to have together? And am I measuring the value that you, as my customer, are deriving? or just the value that I'm getting from you. And I believe it's a two-way street. So in the book, I talk a lot about how you can really think about measuring the value that your customer is receiving from your organization, your offering, your product, your service, as well as the value that you're receiving from them. And if you can get to that two-way street measurement, it's pretty profound.
1: Hmm. Well, and uh, you know, there's, you come from Marketo and uh, and on the enterprise software side, or at least serving businesses, there have been critics on the B2C side about this notion of engagement that consumers at the end of the day don't necessarily want to engage. I don't know where I stand on the offense of, on that, but do you feel like this is applicable to both B2C and B2B? Or how do you think about that?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it from a B2C standpoint, I use the example of Tom's Shoes, and I will apologize in advance if any listener is wearing Tom's shoes or loves Tom's shoes. Um, <laughs> my perspective is pretty simple. When I look at Tom's shoes, they look like they were made out of hay. And I don't really want to wear those shoes. But when I say Tom's shoes, and you and I haven't rehearsed this, where does your mind go? What do you know about Tom's shoes? If I buy one pair, what happens?
1: Right. They give a pair away. Exactly.
3: I, I think you can attest did we We rehearsed that.
1: No, no, no,
3: no. no. knows that because it's a value driven conversation and that's at a B2C level. So there's something inherent about the value of Tom's shoes and it better be pretty deep value because those are some ugly shoes. But they, from my, they are, from my perspective, they, it's it absolutely has applicability at a B2C level. And then, of course, at a B2B level, it does as well. There's a a study that was done by uh, Wonderman that showed that 69% of B2B buyers will only buy from companies where they feel the company understands their values. Now, tell me, that's not an RFP. That's not an analyst-driven magic quadrant review. That's, do you understand my values? That is a huge qualifier walking in the door. So I think that this notion of a value-driven relationship and value-driven engagements is really at the heart of, of what I would call this this broader notion of the engagement economy, which I talk a lot about in the book, that we're living in. So I don't think it's isolated to one or the other. In fact, I think it's, if anything, expanding.
1: Right. Well, I, I did I'd love the notion of the engagement economy. And one of the thoughts that have been going through my head is just the role of empathy plays in Delivering on whether it's engagement or delivering a great experience, but truly, I feel like if the engagement is the economy, the supply and demand, right? Then maybe empathy is the transaction of currency that we're that we're I in. Really,
3: so, I think there's, for me, there are. You, you hit on a really, really interesting point around what what are the currencies in in an engagement economy. Unequivocally, empathy is one. And I think it's both proactive empathy and reactive empathy. I mean, all too often organizations today, you know, our, our standard operating model, whether it's B2C or B2B is promote, 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 then some mistake along the way is made, then apologize. And that to me is an aspirin-based model. We're responding to the headache. And we need to get to a vitamin-based model where it's, we're demonstrating our empathy proactively, And in doing so, you're building up this incredible stock of goodwill so that when things go wrong, and they inevitably will, that happens with all brands, there's less aspirin to be be prescribed simply because of the stock of goodwill that you've built up. So empathy certainly is part of it, but I articulate as well in the Engage to Win book that attention, in particular, attention is absolutely a currency in the engagement economy because people now, more than ever, you know, have a finite amount of attention to spend. I mean, no matter what you do, even if you never slept, you only have 24 hours of attention. So it is a finite resource that we as humans have, and we have to carefully choose where we apply our attention. And it is not just a a belief, it's an unequivocal assertion on my part, that people will spend that currency of attention on companies, on businesses and brands. That they believe align with their values. So, as I have to filter out more and more noise, I will selectively filter out things that just don't align with my values. I won't listen.
1: Right, right. No, that's very true. It's very true. Well, you speak, obviously, the book is about engagement. I can just feel the passion coming through as you talk about it. Where did this come from? Where, you know, was it a pivot? When did you embrace or come to this engagement component?
3: Yeah, um, I I mean, certainly, I've I've had a a passion around taking an outside-in point of view, and as you alluded to, kind of an empathetic approach throughout my career. I think that uh, you know the both at a executive level all the way down to anyone contributing in a business, no matter what role they have. You know, we're we're in this really pivotal moment for businesses where we're we're this you know kind of self elevated you know leaders in organizations and you know aloof approaches to marketing and very sterile views of customers with red yellow green dots and not looking at the value driven conversation I think that's going to go the way of the dinosaur so i've always felt that way well when I came to marketo the first ninety days I spent a fairly and actually even before I came to marketo, I spent an uh, anticipation of Spent a fairly significant amount of time just talking to customers, asking them key questions, and listening. And what I heard, and it was overt. This is not just derived. It was very overt. Was we need to find ways to deepen our relationship with our customers so that they understand that we are not, a, you know, simply a vendor. Or you know, we we always say, oh, we we want a partner, not just a vendor. But over and over and over again, marketers looking for. How can I get away from that sterile view? How can I engage more? And I kept hearing the word "engage," engage, engage. A very second or similar word that I heard that was hot on the heels. It's ironic in that you know it's it something Adobe focuses on was experience. It was engage through experience. Given experience was you know pretty heavily used by Adobe, and I'm not sure that at the time I felt that it captured what I wanted to say. It was just this epiphonic moment for me of we need to lean in and be the company that plants the flag on engagement and drives the, and and helps people understand that in the long term, if you're focused not on the next ninety days, but you and, and 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 don't think in years, think in decades. That driving engagement through every line or aspect of your business, sales, service, support, whatever it may be community and the list goes on and on using that engagement notion as a rallying cry for our customers and more importantly our company it just hit me like a ton of bricks and so it literally went from that to uh probably day 60 at the company i just started writing (laughs)
1: that's great that's great well let's uh let's talk a little bit more about you know what it takes i guess to deliver on engagement you you have a lot of examples in the book from Tom shoes as one example, but there's others and big companies, I think struggle with how to make this switch or how to, how to even switch it all maybe frankly. And you, I think you talk about it as, as locked into old thinking. And it seems with big companies troubling, you know, troubled today, like Sears and their decline, GE is the most recent example, which is amazing to me. And, you know, as an executive, a board member, how do you think about it? What can companies do to prevent this kind of locked in thinking and really start to move towards engagement or move the needle on the initiatives that they're trying to trying to work towards?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, building on those examples you pointed out, and there's a certainly a myriad others in the book as well. If you think about, you know, companies that have struggled, anybody that's facing off against an Amazon.com, Anyone could argue, well, it's because Amazon just has scale and price and availability, but is it really? Or is it the convenience of my ability to go in and have a relatable engagement and experience with Amazon's application? No matter where I am in the world, no matter what device I'm on, no matter what surface I'm looking at, big screen, small screen in between, doesn't matter even my watch or my voice, anything. I can have what I need, or what I've ordered in the past at my fingertips within 24 hours and sometimes same day now. And the point there is, you know, you could argue that it's a collection of things. It's a network effect. It's a matter of convenience, et cetera. But I would argue that Amazon understands intrinsically that engaging with me and, and spending time understanding that as I make purchases over the course of time, it becomes profoundly more accurate number one. Number two, Amazon doesn't inundate we, me with emails. The The reality is, is that Amazon could, I mean, they have the capacity to blast 50 emails a day to me promoting all these different products. Why haven't they? Why haven't they done that? But if you look at traditional retailers, most of them do. And I would argue that that's a balance of engagement. They know that Sending one incredibly valuable, hyper-relevant email is better than 50 emails that have no basis in terms of what I value, what I've looked at. And I always find it fascinating. You know, for example, I can go to a retailer and buy uh, like some camping gear. And, and don't get me wrong, I like I, I respect camping. I'm not a big camper. Camping to me is like I don't have a hairdryer. So when I think about camping, And I go to fill in the blank retailer and I buy camping gear. The email that I will get from them for the rest of my life is come buy more camping gear. And the reality is, is that, uh, you know, they've basically determined that, well, Steve must be a big camper. They've done no additional homework on me. And granted, Amazon has a profound amount of data that they can leverage to build this conversation. But there's an incredible amount of work that goes into not sending communication. And then when they do send communication, making it hyper relevant. So I would argue that it's, you know, Amazon intrinsically understands engagement at multiple levels and gets the different facets of my life. That's what makes them so hard to, to, to compete against. But engagement more broadly, to me, starts with really two fundamental things. I think, one, it starts with a top-down commitment to changing the way that organizations think about engaging and creating experiences for customers. To me, this requires the CEO to think about and hold people within the organization accountable to engagement metrics, which leads me to the second point is establishing engagement metrics. And the engagement metrics in my mind are not impressions, conversions, click through rate, top of funnel. It's starting to measure key elements like how many advocates do we have in the market for our brand? Not net promoter score, how many real advocates and the way to define or think about an advocate is someone that is actively promoting and or uh, promoting your brand and or uh, working within your community to help other customers be successful with your brand for free. There's an incredible network effect there. But if I, you know, if I went and I do this every time I go to a CEO or a CMO, anytime I'm meeting with a company and I say, how many brand advocates do you have? They can't tell me. They know they have them. And so measuring things like that is incredibly important. And then third is establishing an executive leadership role, which I believe is the rightful kind of evolution of the marketer. We have to pivot from chief marketing officer, which often translates into go get me more leads, to chief engagement officer, the second CEO. Got
1: it. Got it. That's great. That's great. Well, you 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 hit on this notion of the two way part of engagement with brand advocates. Um, and I think there's a lot of talk about experience, obviously, in the marketplace and driving better experiences for people. But I think most companies think about that as a one way street and they don't think about the two-way aspects. And I I wanted to see if you had any examples. I know there's, I think, a couple in the book that you could share, you know, in terms of what two-way experience or engagement looks like.
3: Well, sure. I mean, there's, you know, myriad examples both in the book as well as more broadly. So, for me, when I think about engagement, so, uh, you you know, one company in particular, this is a large manufacturer. I'll I'll, um, you know, have to confirm whether or not I can actually reference them, but it's an incredible story. But take a Panasonic as a case in point. So Panasonic, uh, who uses Marketo, and, and again, the book is is not meant to promote Marketo. It's meant to focus on the, the call to action around engagement, but they are using our technology. And you would assume that, uh, you know, a company like Panasonic, which is a, you know, amongst other things, an electronics manufacturer, and they also have a very large IoT infrastructure that when you hear Panasonic and Marketo, of course, they're using you know, Marketo, for example, to market products to customers. Interestingly enough, what they're doing is uh, you know, uh, using Marketo within the context of their IoT or smart infrastructure. So, for example, if I've uh, provided a large amount of uh, uh, smart lighting to a manufacturing company, so think about, you know, a huge manufacturing floor with thousands upon thousands of Internet of Things or IoT connected light bulbs um, within the floor. And if I've outsourced that as a Panasonic and a you know a series of lights or a bank of lights goes out, clearly you've got a productivity issue because having dim lighting in a manufacturing environment is a dangerous and b will stop operations. And so Panasonic, A, being aware of that is something that they can accomplish on their own. But one of the beautiful things that they do is actually take that information in real time. We have lighting that has gone out with one of our customers, and they feed that into Marketo to create an orchestrated response to the customer. So internally at Panasonic, you're talking about multiple people, a service response manager, a customer care manager, all getting information on how to coordinate a proper response to a customer. That's a unique approach and something that we don't see a lot of in large enterprise organizations today. Now, there's a name for that now. It's a thing. It's called service marketing. But from my perspective, it's an incredibly unique way to think about creating that two-way street of responsiveness. So you're, you're actually using Marketo to market inward and coordinate a response internally at a company rather than outward. Now, of course, there are outbound connections that, that, that happen as well. That to me is a pretty impressive line of thinking. And we're seeing that not just by the dozens, but hundreds and hundreds of companies look for those types of scenarios where marketing is a, if you want to call it that two way street, I think a much better word is engagement. They're using the technology to drive customer engagement and employee engagement.
1: Yep. Yeah. No, I love that example. I never thought about the use case of marketing inside based on some sort of signal that you get from your customers. That's awesome. Well, one of the things you mentioned it a minute ago and you talk about you know creating a new executive or uh, establishing a new executive leadership role around engagement and that that in your mind is a natural evolution for the CMO I want to ask you, I mean, you most recently were the, you know, the CMO, or sorry, the CEO of Marketo. Why is that? Why do you think it's a CMO role and not a CEO role? Well, I think it's
3: shared in the book. I talk about the context of both, you know, the CEO and and the CEO, the chief engagement officer and the chief executive officer should both own end-to-end engagement for the organization. And I think it's first, again, it's getting your head wrapped around, we're going to lean in on engagement. We're going to drive these new measures as we talked about, customer lifetime value, you know, brand advocates, company advocates, community, and getting focused on those because those are lifetime are val- long-term value drivers. And then it's getting focused on who in our organization is going to drive this end to end. And every organization within a company, so every line of business, whether it's uh, you know engineering, service support, sales, whatever it may be, And again, it, it's irrelevant whether it's B2B or B2C, should have engagement metrics and should be able to report those up to both, the, both of the CEOs. I just feel as though the, the marketer, her role must evolve from what I view, You know, and I've seen all too often CEOs You know, think about marketers, which is go get me more leads, fill the top of my funnel, and run some ads to build my brand. That's not the job of a modern marketer and no one in an organization save the marketer has a broader purview on engagement metrics but also the two-way street of interaction than than the marketer and the, the beautiful part is i i think the marketer you know her job in many respects as the cmo is to is to bring be the bringer of truth to organizations and i think we all get caught up in the hype of you know wow this product's selling a lot well just because something's selling well doesn't mean that you're driving the long-term engagement metrics for success. And I've been at way too many companies where there's been short-term success followed by long-term pain. And I think, you know, really getting the CMO um, who has this broad purview of engagement, has the, the broad view of, uh, of customers overall, I just feel as though the marketer is best positioned to take the mantle of engagement and move it forward
1: yeah no i I think most listeners to this podcast being marketing today would agree with you. Is there anything you think from a CEO 's perspective that they need to do to either better set the stage for the CMO to kind of live into that role um, and and take on that that charge or in some ways empower them Anything that comes to mind?
3: Yeah, well, I think it starts with a simple question, which is, what do we believe are the key indicators? the key data points that would help us understand on a recurring basis, if we are driving up uh, our long-term value as a company for our customers. So the value they're receiving from us is increasing over time. And the current measure of that value for most organizations is how much did you buy from me? That is not an indicator of success or value, it's not. So, we assume, and it's a very dangerous trap. uh, It really is that you can fall into, which is, wow, they're buying more from me. They must be happy. They must view uh, or derive value from our product or service. And certainly, you know, it'd be foolish to say there's no, you know, there's no trappings of that. But to assume that would also be foolhardy, I think. So, for me, it's more a matter of taking a step back and for your organization and uh, understanding what those measures and or metrics are and i you know i put a few forward like as i said you know measuring customer lifetime value measuring brand advocates and, and and such and there's many many more in the book but i think having that conversation and really understanding what are those value key value drivers and then also you know asking questions like what do we view are the key personal value indicators or key value drivers for our individual buyer, the person that buys our product, the person that depends on our product to be successful, what are their key values? What are they trying to do? And again, measuring those things because they do shift over time and they, they shift by individual, they shift by account, they shift based on seasonality and time. And So I think it's having a conversation and uh, in and around metrics. And that to me is actually, you know, once you've opened that box and you start talking about those metrics that hole gets pretty deep in a good way. And you start to really look at, wow, you know, a lot of the things that we've been measuring really aren't driving value. And I I sat in a board meeting once, uh, um, served on uh, many different boards. We had the CMO come in and this person, he sat down and was taking us through what had to be the greatest world, the, the world's greatest marketing campaign I've ever seen, apparently, because he was indicating to me that this company, which was fairly small, Drove 1.6 billion with a B impressions on this, mar- you know, throughout the duration of this marketing campaign. And my reaction was twofold. One was you have to be the greatest marketer ever because you spent, <laughs> you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars and reached 1.6 billion people. That's that's unbelievable. Do that again and again and again. Um, and then B is you haven't told me at all how it's uh, converted into long-term customer success, a, uh, a higher level of value. Or frankly, even connected it to revenue, which in and of itself cuts against engagement, but there wasn't even that conversation. So for me, it was just kind of a, a, you know, an epic fail level of conversation. And what it, what it ultimately comes down to in my mind is, you know, I've, I've, I've used this quote several times. I talk, reference it in the book a little bit. But when you talk about engagement and experience as two sides of the same coin, if you're hyper focused on creating deep levels of long term engagement, and if you're hyper-focused on creating an incredible and transformative experience, if you can do those two things with passion and with vigor, then it will it, it really makes the difference between something being epic and an epic failure. And that that to me is the core. And I always point to things like um, putting some of the, the corporate issues that an Uber has had aside, which I certainly by no means condone, you know, from my perspective. You know They've done an extraordinary job of changing the world of personal transportation. They really have. And a lot of that has to do with both engagement and experience. And think about it. When was the last time you saw a billboard for Uber or an ad in a magazine for Uber? Never. All the engagement happens in the application. Or when you talk to people, how did you even find out about Uber? Well, you heard it from somebody else ranting and raving about it. And when you open it up, the fact that it knows so much about you and where you've been and where you're going, and you don't have to type in things over and over. All of that is a, is a perfect combination of engagement and experience, um, connected to a very powerful network. And when those things converge, you get a really perfect storm of value. And that's why the companies, you know, change the world.
1: Love it. I love the examples and I encourage listeners to check out the book. There's even much more examples and, and thoughtful thought ideas in the book that you should should read. One of the things we like to do, Steve, on the show is to try to get to, to know the person behind the book or the business that we're talking about. And um, I love asking folks this question, you know, is there an experience in your past that defines or makes up who you are today? you
3: know i tend to think first about the people around me versus myself that have been on this journey with me because i think at the end of the day it's very easy to look inward and think about the things that you've done or what's happened to you know me personally really uh, you know i i have been married to an extraordinary person for the past 25 years my wife shelly and and have two amazing kids but uh she has been there for me through every moment, every time I've been comfortable, every time I've been uncomfortable, taking a risk, no matter what it is. And I truly believe, and my grandfather used to say this, that he was a big golfer, and, and I'm, 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 uh, I can play. I will emphasize that, but I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I, I'm not a great golfer, but I can play. But he would always say when we'd go out and, and play, and I, I'd be a little upset about you know being about twenty strokes past him was. It's not what you shoot. It's who you go on the walk with. And any experience, any modicum of success I've had, I've gone on walks with extraordinary people. So that's certainly one. And then two is, uh, you know, when I was 24, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which I have to say was a bit of a um, life-altering experience, I guess, for me. I, I've always been a, a person that's pretty heavily into fitness and uh this was something that, uh, you know, for quite some time, it was uh, it was devastating to me, and I viewed it as certainly my biggest weakness. You know, how, uh, you know, how it happened was a little bit of a mystery to me, and, you know, as I've come to find out, those things just happen. But over time, it's become, in my mind, my greatest strength, because it has forced me to not look inward and not focus on myself, but to look outward for help from other people because you just can't survive as a type 1 diabetic without great people that are caring for you. You can't uh, you know, really meet a five-year-old that's been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and just not have anything but this deep, heartfelt empathy and passion for someone so young, um, which is why they often call it juvenile diabetes, because you generally develop it when you're very young. I was fortunate to develop it in my twenties, so that certainly was life altering for me. And, and what I've learned from it is diabetes is is uh, managed best when you work pretty much every minute of every hour to, to keep your blood sugar between the uprights, not too high. Not too low, right down the middle, and there's a lot of life lessons there, certainly with that, but I'll leave you with this one in twenty five years or sorry twenty one years of having diabetes, type one, I remember like it was yesterday when I was diagnosed, and I was terrified, and I did the worst thing you could possibly do. I googled type 1 diabetes. And I think anytime anyone Googles any disease, it should just direct you to the same page, which is you are going to die. I think that's pretty much (laughs) what it should do. And so I got to that page and started lamenting. And this was day one. And why me and and my wife, who flew out, I was traveling and, and I was at the hospital to meet me. She said, you know, why not you? And this is your opportunity to do something with this. And and. You know, I, I truly believe that the universe was speaking to me that day because she, she gave me a pep talk. We went out to dinner and I can remember this moment. It is the most crystal clear m- memory I have in my life. There was a woman eating dinner, sitting at the table beside us. And as I was complaining about all the things that I couldn't order on the menu going forward, this is so terrible. This woman had been, uh, been was sitting beside us and she'd been born with incredibly severe birth defects. She was born to no arms and yet was sitting there, eating at the table, feeding herself with no shame. And I looked at my wife and I said, I promise you, I will never complain about the food I can pick up and feed myself. And from that moment, I just learned that, you know, life will deal you, you know, an interesting deck of card or hand and, uh, from the deck of cards. And you need to play that hand you're dealt and you need to play it, you know, the best way you can. And I've met so many extraordinary and special and wonderful people that I've had the opportunity to be inspired by and hopefully inspire people. I was on the board of the American Diabetes Association. I'm currently on the board of the Children's Diabetes Foundation. And just what a rich experience to be able to give back and help people. And I honestly, I don't think that I would be the person that I am today without incredible people and frankly, without this experience that I've, I've had to go through with uh, with type one diabetes. So that's been very transformative for me.
1: Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing that story. It's a beautiful story. And man, what a, what a great woman you found in your wife to kind of get you up and going again. That's awesome. Yep. She's a rock star. <laughs> well, uh, what fuels you, what drives you, what keeps you going?
3: What fuels me? Um, well, certainly driving fast cars. Um, that's one of my favorite things <laughs> to do. Um, you know, for me, it's it's um, you know I have always felt and always want to feel like uh, you know I have a chance to make a difference. You know, I'm I'm a kid that grew up in a small town in North Carolina. I was born in West Virginia we didn't have you know uh, we we grew up with less fortunate circumstances in in my family uh, we were i I guess I'd characterize it as lower middle class so it, it's certainly not a rags to riches story but we uh, we we didn't have a wealth of of uh, you know of money or monetary thing uh, assets but what we did have was a wealth of uh, of of love and a nurturing environment growing up but my parents never told me I couldn't do anything. It was quite the opposite. It was, I can do anything I want. And that was encouraged from an early age on. And I had this very deep and burning desire to just, you know, borrow a term from Steve Jobs here, make a dent in the universe. I wanted to make a difference. I, I just, I, I, I don't know where that came from, that deep and burning desire. And I was sure that uh, whatever I did, that I, I wanted to be able to do that. And uh, very early on, I can remember reading an article in uh, E-Week. This was a long, long, long time ago and uh, it was 20 plus years ago. And the article was it was, you know, some article about Hasso Plotner, who was the CEO at the time of SAP. And I said to myself, I will be that. That's what I wanted to be. And I had no idea how, but it was interesting. Every one on one that I'd have with a manager or whomever, and they'd always say, well, Steve, what's your next career move? And I would say, well, I don't know, but I'm going to be the CEO of a billion-dollar software company. And I always get this sideways look. You know, you can imagine some junior (laughs) pre-sales rep at a software company. And the same answer was, well, no, I'm going to – you have to wait in line. It's not your turn. And, you know, I heard that a lot. (laughs) It's not my (laughs) turn. And, you know, for me, I'll tell you what drives me is being told I can't do something. (laughs) that's what drives me. If you want me to go do something, tell me I can't do it. And I'll just kind of like, you know, and then run out the door and, and go do it. But I just, you know, I would encourage anybody listening to just don't think about when you get asked that question, what do you want to be? It's not about what you want to be next or in the next five minutes. No, it's because that doesn't, what you do is not who you are. And it's, it's contemplate, what is that thing you really want to do to change the world and whether you get to it today or in my case you know uh, in my early 40s what is it that you want to do to make that dent and have that impact and it's not that i i didn't have impact prior to that but certainly you know being ceo of of a of a company that ultimately was you know acquired for five billion that is one of the most powerful marketing software companies in the world is is really gratifying but what's more gratifying for me is the thousands of people, thousands of employees, you know, represented by Marketo now, you know, part of this incredible company, Adobe. It is so rewarding to think about the, the jobs created, the, the 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 homes that were able to be bought. The as I as I work with more and more millennials, the first car purchased, um, uh, the the first kid showing up, those special moments for me mean everything and I'll never forget them but certainly tell me you know I can't do something and, and I'll just run out the door and go do it.
1: <laughs> there must be something about the water of North Carolina where what town are you did you grow up in? Uh Garner. Garner oh, south okay. of Raleigh. Yeah, yeah. I'm sitting right now in Durham, North Carolina, but I grew up oh, in yeah, yeah,
3: Research Triangle Park. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a great place to grow up, and I, there must be something in the in the water here. So, because I, I feel the same way. Tell me, I can't do something, and I'm going to go prove you wrong. That's right. <laughs> so, what advice would you give? I, maybe you just gave it your younger self.
3: Yeah, you know, my younger soul, my goodness, young Steve. Um, oh <laughs> young Steve. Um, I would tell him to take more risks sooner. It's not that I regret any experience that I've had, but I will tell you, and you know, maybe this is kind of like it's going to be a little cathartic, and I feel like, you know, just really opening myself up here, but I was afraid. To take risk at some points in my career, not because I didn't think that I would succeed, but life happens. You know, we had kids. And didn't, the location was, you know, just something was never right. It just never was, and I, I landed at a point in my career where, you know, especially when the Marketo opportunity presented itself, where I mean, nothing's ever perfect. But I, I remember, and I was doing very well at SAP and loved the company. But I remember sitting up and I, I just had this upwelling, um, upwelling kind of set of emotions in this moment where I just said, I'm going to do it. And I can't tell you like why that moment was the right moment. Maybe it was just, you know, I had had enough of myself and the, you know, kind of like I'm going to go, I'm going to go do this thing and I'm going to be the CEO of a software company. But I realized like, holy cow, I'm like in my early 40s and I haven't done it yet. I better go do it. I would just go back and tell myself, you know, take more risk. The, the worst thing that happens, literally, is you fail. You learn something, and you start again. But you know what I have learned in life is everyone falls. Just fall forward.
1: <laughs> I love uh, great advice. Great advice. Well, you've already talked about diabetes foundation and you the diabetes foundation are there any other brands or causes that you think people should take notice of or that you follow
3: well i will say i mean it's a, not so much a brand or a cause i think that we've uh, you know my I, I will state my general observation on the kind of somewhat toxic environment that we have certainly in the u.s market or the u.s kind of political environment right now um it is of great concern to me from the standpoint of I feel as though if we think about, you know, again, using social media as a case in point, Well, it's incredibly empowering and gives, you know, voice to the voiceless or uh, certainly provides a community to overlook zip codes and, 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 you know, things that we should be addressing as a community. I will never debate the incredible, wonderful impact of social media. But there's also a toxicity to it that we have to be very careful of, and I'll just kind of I'll end where I began on this point: is we have to be careful. Two hundred and eighty characters do not sum up a person's life, and I think we've just created this incredibly polarized world where everything that a person says, one way or another, is is just you know incredibly polarizing. And this the, the world we live in right now. This is this is uh, not a world for one. You know, gender, race, ethnicity, geography—it's not. It's a—it's it, a—it's a world, and we have to find a way to create opportunity for all, not opportunity for the few. And you know, having gone through you know my life, where I've been uh, as a younger person, you know, certainly in in a time of need and want, and as I've had success in my career, uh, less so. I can tell you that. It is unequivocally the job of those that have had the incredible fortune to be supported by so many and achieve success to really look broadly across the, the, the you know, the, the local as well as global community and think long and hard about what can I do to make a difference. And, and I just think that it's a, for me, it's a call to action around, you know, I think anyone that's had any modicum of success should be leveraging that success to lift other people up, not, you know, stand on their heads. And that, to me, is one of the things that we have to focus on in this incredibly uh, toxic political environment that we have right now. And things have to change. And uh, I certainly look forward to that change coming.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And you made a great point early in the conversation around it's really hard to, uh, to hate someone if you were talking to them face to face. Um, and we actually contribute to discourse, you know, and conversation between two people. So easy to hide behind the the tweet or the, or the email in some cases. Indeed it is. (laughs) Last question for you. And I know what one answer is going to be, but what do you see for the future of marketing? What does it look like to you? Obviously, engagement is one.
3: Engagement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I think that the future of marketing, I mean, it's in some respect, it's already here, but oh, I get so excited when I think about what is just what's here today and what's right around the corner. I think that a lot of what we do today in marketing, which requires a lot of heavy lifting, is going to go through this kind of this is not a word, but I'm going to use it anyway cognification, this cognifying of activity in marketing, where you know, the the these big words like email marketing and ad placement and things like that, that's not going to go away. But I think, frankly, machines can do a much, much more effective job of actually, and this is ironic, I think, creating deeper levels of engagement and identifying value at scale than people can. It's a simple question. How do I reach out? to How do I personalize my communication to 100 million people? The answer is you don't but machines can. And so I think there's this incredible opportunity to think about how do we, rather than just creating these, you know, carpet bombing approaches to ads and communications that are meaningless and shallow, and really think about finding value, connecting that value, and then allowing, you know, the AI-powered engines to, to drive more of that. So to me, it's actually less communication, but higher value, But, you know, doing it at scale, that's tough. It is tough. So I think the machines are coming and everything that we do from sending out emails or placing ads all the way to content creation, all of it's being cognified right now. In a literal sense, there's technology that we're working on right now where uh, I have a content library of images and documents, and it's fairly static in that as humans update that content, the library is updated. But why can't machines look at that library and determine, well, you know what? Steve may actually like three or four different paragraphs from four or five different articles. So I'm going to extract those things based on his value. I'm going to create a new document in real time. That's coming fast. And so that level of engagement and experience is extraordinary. And that's something that uh, marketers need to be not just thinking about, but acting on and preparing their organizations to do. And it will ultimately allow humans to elevate to that uh, much more, I think, noble calling that we have, which is being human.
1: Well, Steve, you have left us with a lot to think about today. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. I've really enjoyed the conversation and thank you for the opportunity.
1: Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley. Social media support by Megan Woods. Art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.